I was just pointing out how some sons-in-laws are more reliable than others, and for some reason it created a competition, so I don't know. It's hard to pick a, hard to pick a winner there, isn't it? All right. Well, glad you're here today. Happy Sabbath to you all. A uh, couple uh, just kind of scheduled things to get in your head here. Uh, so, so we've got pretty much the fall and the early winter laid out on how things are going to go here at church. So I'm, I'll be here today, and then I'm speaking for the next two weeks. But then come October 7, you want to make sure you're here for this, because Dina King is going to be our speaker again. You recall she spoke for us earlier this year and did a fabulous job. So I got a hold of her immediately after that and said, that has to happen again. And she said, can I wait until the heavy season is over at the store? I said, sure. When's that? She said, October. So October it is. Uh, October 7th, she'll speak. Then I'll speak the 14th. And then another really special day, October 21. Pastor Molly will speak for the first time. So you want to make sure you're here October 21 for that. Then it'll be me again for a couple weeks. And then another treat, Alicia, my wife, is going to speak on November 11. And she's going to tell the story of our rather remarkable experience we went through with our son, Nathan, related to his health and, uh, and, and the Lord's working in that whole story. So you're going to want to hear that story, and then it'll be me again for a bit. Uh, We're kind of tentatively looking at our next communion service to be December 2. So if you wanted to give any feedback on on, uh, last Sabbath, that was a real blessing last Sabbath, and I I really enjoyed sharing that communion service with you all last week. I'm glad I felt well enough to do that, which by the way, by Monday I was feeling great. So I'm feeling great now, so whatever that was, it's over and gone, feeling good now. So December 2 is our target for our next communion service. So you can just have that in your mind. And then December 9, something you've all waited three years for, we finally convinced Pastor Japheth to speak again. So December 9, he will be back in his favorite season of the year. So we're looking forward to that. So David's going to speak for us December 9. That'll be awesome. Now, regarding Molly, she has a bit of a crazy schedule over the next couple of weeks because she's in what's called the MAP Men program. What it is, it's an MA pastoral ministry program. And every, what is it, every six months, something like that, she has to go somewhere and take classes for a couple of weeks. So she's going to be going to Lincoln this next week, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she'll be gone all this next week. Her plan at this point is to be back on Sabbath. I'm not sure it's as much about us as it is about the family, but, but we can pretend it was about us. And, uh, and then she goes again for another week, uh, and we'll be back after that. So she won't be available during the week for the next couple of weeks. Uh, but then uh, look forward to October 21 when she's going to speak. All right, so that's, that's a quick look at what we've got coming up for the rest of this year down towards the end of the year, get into the Christmas season. Now, another thing to make you aware of, <clears throat> the next 36 hours in this building are intense. 
Uh, there's us. We're here right now, and we're kicking it off. But tonight, the Boulder Chamber Orchestra starts their season, so they'll be here. This, this whole platform will be transformed, and they'll be here uh, tonight for their concert. Then tomorrow morning, The Well, which is the church we're renting to at least through the end of the year, will be here for their worship service. And then tomorrow, just afternoon, is Porch Fest, where we, uh, our participation there is we allow a couple of bands to play out in front there, and as well, uh, we open the doors so they can use the restrooms here. So that'll be going on tomorrow through that time. So if you're in the area and you see activity here, it's pretty much going to be nonstop from right now until sometime uh, tomorrow evening. But it's fun for us to be able to be a part of the larger community and uh, contribute in that way. Uh, by the way, I heard the Boulder Chamber Orchestra in here this week practicing. Sounded really good. So if you're interested in coming to that, uh, there is a admission at the door, but uh, you're certainly welcome to uh, come and hear that. It's a very good group, and uh, it sounded really good. Debbie is playing the role as our representative with them, so she'll be here tonight uh, and to be a part of that. Anyway, I'll be here tomorrow, by the way, during Porch Fest, uh, and if anybody else wanted to come, that's fine, but you know, we're basically just keeping things enough in order that, uh, that everything goes smoothly and we can participate in that event. So, all right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunities you give us uh, to participate in one another's lives, <clears throat> to be engaged in the community. Lord, help us. Help us to understand the opportunities uh, when you would have us speak a word or do a deed or whatever it is to bring glory to your name. I pray, Lord, that uh, we and this place can do that. Uh, now, Lord, as we turn our minds to your word, uh, teach us from your word today what we need to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke chapter 6, we're going to start in Luke chapter 6 today, <clears throat> and and Luke chapter 6, verse 20, specifically, is where we're starting. You heard some of this read a little bit ago. The first line there says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. Now, we've talked about this before, but, but whenever you're jumping in somewhere to a passage somewhere in the Bible, there is often context. And context is very relevant to understanding so anytime a sentence that you're reading in a verse starts with therefore or however or and or but or yet or something like that, it, there's something before you probably need to know what happened to help you have your context. Now it's not as critical here, but let's take a minute to, to understand that he who lifted up his eyes is Jesus on his disciples. So the context here, if you go back to verse 12 through 16, you'll see the story of where Jesus appointed the 12 apostles. He appointed the 12 out of the larger group of disciples. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Not everybody is called to be an apostle, but everybody here is called to be a disciple. So he calls us to be his disciples, his followers, 
We're not all given the apostle role, but we are all called to be disciples. And then if you go down, you get to verse 17, and this is where we focused last Sabbath. It says, and Jesus came down with them, that would be the 12, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. So we use this as our context last Sabbath for our communion, how we want to be in the crowd that touches Jesus. And he has given us this service of communion to enable us to do that because we want the power of Jesus to come out and heal us. And to that end, I say to you today, hang on to your faith. Your healing will come sooner or later. Hang on to that faith. But now we're ready for verse 20. So that's where we start today. Luke 6, verse 20. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, <clears throat> and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So what we've got going on here is Luke's take on the Sermon on the Mount. You remember the Sermon on the Mount. It, we find it primarily in the book of Matthew, and particularly Matthew chapters 5 through 7. In the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount gets three full chapters. In Luke, it's only about 30 verses. That's still significant, but it's not at all like it is given in the book of Matthew. And, and maybe we can, we can cut Luke a break here for being a little short on details because if you'll recall, Luke wasn't there. Okay, Matthew was there the day of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke just heard about it from other people. So what he's recorded is what he got from other people about it. So this whole, what I just read you, there, we could do a lot of unpacking of those words. In fact, I could probably do three or four sermons just on what I read you already. But I will comment on that, but that's actually not going to be our main direction today. We're going to kind of do a, kind of going to throw a curveball at you today. We're going to go a different way. But here's the comment I will make on what we just read. First of all, according to what Jesus says, the poor are not cursed by God, but in fact are promised the kingdom. Their poverty will be reversed. The hungry might even starve to death now, but the day will come when God will give them justice. The sad who put their hope in Jesus, will one day laugh again. And the hated, the excluded, the reviled, the spurned, because they profess faith in Jesus, 
will be richly rewarded in heaven and are worthy of mention in the same sentence as the prophets. In each case, what we see Jesus promising in these words is to reverse the suffering of his faithful ones. And indeed, this reality that Jesus would come and bring reversal to those who are faithful is, is actually prophesied about Jesus, that he would in fact be this way. In fact, it's prophesied in the very verse that Jesus quotes when he stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth back in chapter 4 where we started this slow walk in the book of Luke. It is in that prophecy where this reversal is told in advance. <clears throat> and it goes like this. It's from Isaiah chapter 61. And the words go like this. <clears throat> the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Which is exactly what Jesus just did. He said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's good news. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, which is what he said. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. And then verse 3. Watch these reversals. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. When you were in mourning, you put ashes on your head. But he's going to replace that with something beautiful. The oil of gladness for mourning. It's a reversal. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Jesus has come to bring reversals. To change it. Reversals for the poor. Reversals for the needy. Reversals for the hungry, reversals for the broken, for the sad. Jesus promises to make things right. And this is the first point today. And one to be sure you are holding on to. Jesus promises to make all things right. So hang on to that. Because you're going to need to. Because the water ahead is a little rougher than this. You see, because there's, there's more here to this whole reversal theme. And unfortunately, more that might perhaps apply to us even better than what we looked at so far. Luke chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus goes on and he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation." Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Reversals. And maybe these are reversals we would rather not experience. Sign me up for the first list. I don't know about this one. Now, as, as a group here, 
Some of us here are richer than others, but very few of us in this room could be counted among the truly poor of the earth. Those without means or access to the things that they need to survive. And in that sense, we are really more the rich here than the poor, aren't we? Have we already received our consolation? Most of us aren't hungry because if you're smart, you got some of that food back there before you came in here. And if you're hungry, what are you doing? Get up and get some. It's there. But does that mean we'll be hungry one day? I suppose in regards to laughing, we likely aren't all laughing today, but, but surely we have all learned by now that tragedy and loss can happen to any of us at any time. And for the record, I definitely like it better when people speak well of me. But do I like it enough to violate my conscience in order to see it happen? Reversals. And it is at this point that I intend to deviate from where you might have expected I would go with this passage. What I want to reflect upon is some speculation regarding human nature or fallen human nature. Some things that I've observed from watching myself and watching others and some things that I have observed from reading the Bible. Here is my thesis statement. You will need to decide if you agree or not. One of the greatest ironies of our fallen condition as humans is this. The greatest dangers to our righteousness, our faithfulness, and our spirituality are wealth, comfort, and ease. That's my thesis. You have to see if you agree. The greatest dangers to our righteousness, faithfulness, and spirituality are wealth, comfort, and ease. Matthew chapter 19, verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Tough words. Old Testament, Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Reversals. James chapter 5 verse 1 Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver has corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Troubling words. Words of reversal that mirror what Jesus says. Woe to you who are rich. You've already had your consolation. Human nature. What is it about wealth, comfort, and ease that is so harmful to us? As I was reflecting on this whole subject, a, a scene from a movie came back to my mind, a movie from 1999, and it's one that's been referenced a lot of different times by a lot of different speakers, but the movie was called The Matrix, and if you're old enough, you may have seen it, and it's a fascinating story of, of, uh, of, of living in a false reality and giving the opportunity to awaken from it, and a lot of people have found a lot of different uh, ways of present, presenting that concept and the idea of, of, of faith and Christianity. But, but there was one speech in it that stuck out to me and it stayed in my mind from the first time I heard it. Because it seemed to me that there was a lot of truth in it that spoke to a reality of what was going on at the core of human nature. And I'll just quote a piece of it. It went like this. You see, they, they created this phony reality that was only taking place in the mind, but it was so convincing that, uh, that people would choose to live in it over the reality, which was seemingly harder. But it went like this. The first matrix was designed to be a perfect human world where no one suffered, where everyone would be happy. It was a disaster. No one would accept the program. As a species, human beings define their reality through misery and suffering. It was a fascinating assessment, and this was by the AI. It was assessing humanity this way, and he said, we tried to give you a perfect world, but nothing destroyed you faster than wealth, comfort, and ease. So we had to give you an imperfect world so you'd believe it. It's a fascinating commentary on human nature, isn't it? Is it true? Well, let's think about this for an example. Let's, let's take Israel for an example. Nehemiah chapter 9. You may want to turn there because we're going to read a decent length of passage here in order to understand it. And this may sound familiar because we actually visited this very passage back on July 14 when we were considering a particular quote that appears in it from Leviticus chapter 18. But now we're going to go there to try to gain an insight into the nature of humanity, even the nature of those called to be God's people. So Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 22, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So this is, this is talking about, Nehemiah is talking about when God brought Israel into the land of Canaan and delivered them. 
It says, so they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Interesting that we hear Bashan again here. Amos 4 refers to Israel after they've lived in this glorious land for a long time as cows of Bashan. Because the cows there got big and fat and happy and lazy. They took this land. God gave it to them. Verse 23. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. So God gave them everything. You sometimes wish God would give you everything. Total prosperity. But now, verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does, he shall live by them. That's the Leviticus quote. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their necks and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So do you see the description here? God gives Israel everything. And once they have everything... They turn away into self-centeredness and self-indulgence. And so then they lose everything and they suffer. And when they suffer, they turn to God with their whole hearts and He delivers them and they have everything again. And then they sink into self-centeredness and self-indulgence. And then trials come and, and then they're faithful again and and the cycle just goes on and on and on. When you read this, it's hard to read this and not think that the worst thing God could do for our long-term well-being is bless us. It's troubling, isn't it? Let's talk for a second about the the ironic tragedy of being an Adventist. 
If the year was 1920, and you were a standard, low-wage day laborer with a struggling family somewhere in America, and you wanted to make one decision that would transform the trajectory of your family. I would suggest to you the best decision you could have made in 1920 to change the future of your generation would be become a Seventh-day Adventist and buy into the process. Buy into the process. Because that would have set your family on the road to success. First of all, you would have scrapped together what money you didn't have and sent your kids to the tiny little Adventist school that you had there at your church. Maybe one room, maybe 12 students total. Because that was the plan. And then every summer, you would use your vacation time to take the family to camp meeting on the campus of the academy, wherever you were. And then your kids, when they finally got old enough, would leave that little school and go to that boarding school and spend four years there with a whole bunch of other Adventist kids, becoming enculturated into the ways of what Adventism is. And then after that, somehow you would have come up with the money to send them to the nearest Adventist college where they would have attended four years, gotten a degree, perhaps the first college degree in the history of your family, and then gone on from there. Now, they probably didn't come back to where they started, but gone on from there. And then if they would have done the same thing, and oh, by the way, if the kids did play by the rules, by the time they got out of college, they, by playing by the rules, were not alcoholics, were not smokers, had a decent sense of what it meant to live as a healthy person, had a respect for the Ten Commandments. Again, the assumption here is you played by the rules. And then your kids did the same thing with their kids. And maybe even those kids after them did the same thing. By now, by today, if everyone played the game by the rules and stayed with the team, at least through those first generations, you could have been a low-day laborer, low-wage day laborer in 1920. But now your great-grandkids are doctors, administrators, educators, engineers, professionals earning high wages. So success, right? But here's the thing. That fourth generation might not actually be Adventist anymore. So success, right? And as much as they're not in poverty, that doesn't necessarily mean they're happy. See the problem, right? Reversals. Can we handle prosperity? Prosperity. 
Solomon wasn't very good at prosperity. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5, At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love for your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Solomon asked for wisdom. We, we talk about that. He did great. He asked for wisdom. Now look, look what happens. Verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. This is the promise. So how did all this blessing go for Solomon? I mean, it would be hard for us to wish anything greater for our kids than this blessing, right? So how did this blessing go? Ever read Ecclesiastes? Vanity. Vanity. All is vanity. 1 Kings chapter 11. We're eight chapters later now. 1 Kings chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their God. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. You remember, David's years were mostly struggle. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done, then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. And it became demonstrably clear that God could not afford to bless his people this much. Because in the fallen condition of our souls, None of us can handle it. Even the wisest man 
whoever lived. Instead, God had to give us something else, something I know I don't like. But is it exactly what we need most? Genesis chapter 3 tells the story of the fall of Adam and Eve when they eat the forbidden fruit. We jump over the first part of that today to the part where they're talking with God after the event. Genesis 3 verse 16. To the woman the Lord God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, when I read that, what I hear is, it's going to be needlessly hard on women. That's what I hear. But is it for no reason? Now we can only speculate what reality would be if these things weren't true. But would our utopian speculations be right? See, we dream that if I just had everything I needed, I'd be great. But would I? Or would I become the most self-indulgent jerk to walk the earth ever? I will leave this, for this is dicey ground, and move on to something I'm more confident about. The words that follow, Genesis 3, verse 17, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here's what he's saying. No longer will it be easy to survive. From now on, it's going to be hard work. And here's my speculation. Back to my thesis from earlier. It is not without reason that God has made our lives difficult. Because in our fallen condition, the greatest dangers to our righteousness, faithfulness, and spirituality are wealth, comfort, and ease. Therefore, if God is going to save us from ourselves, he's going to have to save us from wealth, comfort, and ease. And thus the curse. What do you think? Do you hate this as much as I do? The Powerball jackpot today is estimated at $596 million. What would become of you if you won? Is it true that one of the primary reasons we aren't just total self-centered, self-indulgent oppressors is because we're too poor to be that? And that is what we would become if we could. The cows and the oxen of Bashan. Who would we be without restraint? Is it someone you'd be proud of? I'm going to invite the band to come back up. Let's see if we can end this somehow. 
I want to end it with a proverb. It's not a proverb of Solomon, but as an individual identified as Agur. Not Solomon, but one who spoke something that I think is very wise. Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, beginning in verse 7. He says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Here's the first one. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. He says, I want to be a person of integrity. And here's the second one. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? Do you remember how it says, give us this day, what? Our daily bread. It doesn't say, give us this day enough that I'm sure of the next five years. It says, give us this day our daily bread. Why? So that we'll come back tomorrow and ask again. Could that be enough? Trust God for daily bread? Another question. Does the Lord dare risk blessing you? So what reversals can the Lord work in your life? I hope that the reversal the Lord is going to work in all of our lives is from struggle to victory. I hope he doesn't need to take something away in order to save my soul. But can I trust him regardless? And if this struggle of our lives must go on, can we trust that Jesus has the best in mind for us? Maybe we're not yet ready for deliverance. Or maybe our faithfulness in struggle is such a witness that God will do more with the hard times than he could ever do if we were at ease. Luke chapter 6 verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. So based on this, slightly different category than you might have expected, are you blessed today? Let's pray. Jesus, prepare us to be able to receive your reversals. We desire to be righteous, faithful, and living by your Spirit more than we desire wealth, comfort, and ease. Or at least we want to desire that more. Help us, Lord, to endure until our deliverance. In Jesus' name.